and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know about a program that I'm currently running for executives. So if this is your first time joining us on the podcast, welcome. And if you've been here before, you know that I have worked as a mental performance coach for the past eight years where I've worked with athletes on their mindset. And I also have worked with teams to cultivate their mindset for performance. And over the years, I've been introduced to people outside of sports and have enjoyed and loved that work with them. So as a result of that, I decided to really spend some time and some space learning about the executive coaching world. I actually went back to school and went to Georgetown University to get a certificate in executive coaching. And upon graduating from that program, I decided to launch a cohort of 10 executives that I am currently coaching. And the idea of the cohort is to coach these 10 executives for 12 sessions, all one-on-one coaching. And then then at the end of our work together, bring them together for a day-long retreat. So the program's going really well. We're just finishing the first cohort. And as a result, and based on the feedback I've gotten from the first cohort, we've decided to launch a second cohort that will launch in late June, early July. So if you are somebody who's open-minded, curious, you like to watch TED Talks, you like to read books, you like podcasts like this, reach out to me at brian at blevinson.com. Once again, it's brian at blevinson.com. Shoot me a note. Tell me a bit about yourself and let me know why you might be a good fit for this program. I can also give you more information on the cohort then. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to those of you that have already reached out to learn more about the cohort. And once again, if you're interested in taking your performance to another level, feel free to reach out. Now to today's guest. Stu Singer and I have had many conversations over the years about mindset and specifically around mindset for performance in sport. Stu has worked as the director of performance psychology for the WNBA's Washington Mystics and as a performance psychologist for the University of Maryland women's basketball team, Fordham University women's basketball team, Rice University, and the Connecticut Sun, among other teams. So Stu and his work locally in my area with the Mystics and with Maryland women's basketball has brought him to the area and that's 
that's led to us connecting often and, and chatting and having conversations around mindset. So uh, Stu has served uh, an integral role in helping University of Maryland women's basketball reach back-to-back Final Fours and Fordham University women's basketball in winning their first Atlantic 10 championship. Stu's approach focuses on teaching and providing mental performance skills for athletes that have the pressures of competing at elite levels in high school, college, and pro sports. He also provides team trainings, clinics, and consultation with coaches on how to develop healthy and effective mental performance fundamentals for their athletes. And we will get into his work with coaches and trying to create a psychological environment that is conducive to performance. Stu completed his Doctor of Psychology coursework at the University of the Rockies, where he specialized in sport and performance psychology and is also a professional member of the association for applied sports psychology he additionally received his med in counseling from shippensburg university and we will talk about that as well in this conversation so this conversation gets into the core of mental performance specifically around sports psychology that is what Stu is passionate about and he will talk about everything that he's learned up until now and where he thinks the field is going in the future so Without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Stu Singer. Stu, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think we were first introduced by Coach Scott Allen at Paul VI uh, High School. He works for the uh, girls' basketball team there, and Scott has built quite a quite a program over there. And uh, I was fortunate that I actually started with the boys team and then Scott, who is a lifelong learner and just somebody who's always looking to get an edge, uh, saw me in the gym one day and when I was first starting to do this stuff and said, hey, Brian, I think you can help me out. And Coach Glenn Ferrello, the, the boys coach, uh, is somebody who's always also looking for an edge and he didn't care that I would go and spend some time with the girls. I just remember him saying, hey, Brian, just don't, don't don't ever miss us. Like don't, don't spend too much time over there. <laughs> right, but, right. But Scott, I remember him saying, Hey, you got to connect with Stu. He's working with the Maryland women's basketball team and doing really cool stuff. And I talked to Stu every once in a while. And, and so I think he was our first point of contact. And then since then I've enjoyed having conversations with you over video in person. Uh, and it's just always great to have somebody else in the field that you can rap with, talk with. And so I'm excited to see where this goes and, and to talk sports psychology with you to talk about a lot of other different aspects of the mental game. And one thing I don't really have a good grasp on when it comes to you and your background is what life was like for you as a child. And I would just like to go there to get some perspective on the human side of you and how you ended up becoming the adult version of you. Wow. Um, yeah. So my background is, is that my fan, like I literally grew up in sports as being everything to us. My family owned a, uh, a sporting goods store back in the days where you could own a family run store. And before the, the, you know, the, the dicks of the world uh, took over the sporting good, you know, world. And, and so for my youngest, you know, experiences, you know, selling cleats, you know, baseball gloves, bats, uh, basketball, soccer, you name it, we had it. And, and that was the, the world that I grew up in. Um, and I have an older brother who's uh, nine years older than me that was um, uh, a really uh, successful basketball player. And, and, and he took, you know, or I guess my parents took me everywhere he was playing. So my youngest memories are hanging out uh, in gyms, watching, watching him play. And then, uh, and then it, that, you know, 
started my passion, my love for sports. I started playing um, and, you know, had my own, you know, share of, of successes as, as an athlete and, um, and just found that somehow, some way, everything that I did, whether it be a book report in, in school was going to be about sports. So I, I fell in love with it. <clears throat> I fell in love with competition. I fell in love with the idea of what makes people great and, and people performing in the most pressure packed moments, um, and succeeding, um, intrigued me even as a young, like, you know, probably before I even understood what I was watching and, and what mechanisms may be going on inside of that. Um, I, I was intrigued by it. And then, um, and then I would also say from, a well, I can say also my high school basketball coach, we did clinics on Saturday mornings for the younger basketball players in the school district um, to kind of teach them what offenses we run and do skills and, and, and things like that with them. And so I realized I liked coaching at that point. That was probably my sophomore, junior year that we started that. And then, um, and then he also gave us a handout. Um, that he had copied out of probably a coaching magazine or book or something. And it was on visualization. And I had no idea what that was. Um, never had heard of it. I don't know if I'd even heard of the concept of sports psychologist prior to that. And that was super intriguing to me. Um, honestly, I don't remember doing a good job with it. I remember we did it. And then I don't remember me really doing much with it after that point. But the idea, the concept that we could train our mind became something that was pretty, um, it fascinated me. Uh, I didn't think I was capable of doing it at the time because education was not a priority for me at that point in high school. So the idea that I was going to get a PhD or, or anything beyond maybe high school at that point, but certainly getting my, my bachelor's degree was probably something I wasn't in any way interested in. Um, but I'm still what did your, fascinated. What did your- what did your older brother do as far as school? So, cause you're in high school and at that point he's probably what, 24, 23, you know, 25, whatever it is. Uh, what was, what path was he uh, pursuing that you were looking up and yeah. potentially following? Yeah. So he, it's interesting because this is also probably part of my path is that he ended up um, being recruited to play college division three at Gettysburg college. Um, and uh, started playing and um, midway through his freshman year um, really messed up his back. Um, and, and essentially that was the end he went from being somebody that played nonstop and dedicated his life to it, to it's over in a heartbeat. Um, and um, so, and, you know, and I, I was obviously too young. I was probably fourth grade when, when he was in college. So I was not, aware of what all that meant or anything, but, but I do remember it coming to a screeching halt. Uh, and it was a major part of his world that all of a sudden was over. Um, and so, you know, so that was a, a part of it, uh, for me, I think is just realizing the, like how quick it can be gone. And then, um, unfortunately for me, I guess we both had the same, uh, you know, I think we had a warranty basically on our backs that after 15 years, there's no more warranty. And so mine got really bad, probably even a little bit earlier, about 15, 16 to the point where I played, 
I mean, I played seasons where I, it, I couldn't really bend over to pick tie my shoes, but I, I, you know, I did physical therapy, did some treatment on it, got, you know, get good enough that I could play. But the reality was I was in a lot of pain, pretty chronic pain. And by the time I was 22, I had to have a disc surgery. I had two herniated discs in my lower back. So I think for me, the, the psychology of performance was, was definitely impacted by the pain that I played. I, and I played in a lot of pain. Um, and I didn't realize then what an impact chronic pain has on the mental aspect of, of life, let alone performance. And I want to go back a little bit to dive into mom and dad. So family business on mom's side, dad's side, which was the sporting good? My dad and my, and his brother. So my uncle started the business um, together um, and ran it together. And then my mom uh, and her best friend who ended up marrying my dad's brother uh, were both in the business. So when I tell you family business, it was deeply family business. And you know, I, there's no way you would know this, but my grandpa's family, uh, they had a sporting goods store in Washington, D.C., Atlas Sporting Goods Store. And to, no this, to this day, I occasionally, someone will ask me, what's your last name? And they'll say, are you related to Buddy Levinson? And I'll say, yeah. And they're like, my mom worked at the Atlas Sporting Goods Store. And so- Same. Same. And my dad is- my dad would tell stories similar to you. Like he would go to the store, run around, you know, sell some stuff. And so it's, uh, I worked there every year from about 14 on through college. Um, you know, whenever I, whenever I could, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was everything. And if you talk to people that grew up in, in my area, where was uh, that? Where'd you grow up? Harrisburg PA. Okay. Um, if you talk to people and, and they're in a certain age category, they'll, they will say that's the, that was the only place to go for your cleats, your basketball shoes, your glove, your bat, the ball, everything. Like they're uniforming. Everything was done there. Everybody knew. And they either knew my dad or my uncle for sure. And growing up in Harrisburg. So Harrisburg's about what an hour and a half, two hours from DC. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's actually not too far. I, I, I've driven through it when I used to go up to Syracuse for, for school and, but it's a small city. Um, yep, small city. What was, what were your sport teams that you cheated for? How did sport come into your life and why did, why was sport such a big deal for you and your brother? I mean, I don't know for sure. Cause it's hard to completely compare, but what I can say is it's a massive um, sports is, is deeply ingrained in the whole community. Um, there's some pretty, um, I mean, there's some phenomenal athletes that have come out of the area. There's great teams, great programs that are in the area. Um, I, I probably played in potentially the era of one of the, the best four year programs in, in the, in the state and Carlisle high school with Billy Owens and Jeff Lebo playing on the same high school team. And those guys went on to pretty incredible success at Syracuse in North Carolina. And they played on the same high school basketball team together with Billy's brother, Michael, who played at Syracuse as a running back. I mean, they, they had a ton of, of pro talent on, uh, on, on one high school team. And, and, but my senior year now, Jeff Lebo had graduated, but Billy Owens was still there. 
and they actually didn't even win our league, let a, but they did end up going on to win their fourth in a row state championship, but didn't even win our league that year. So it was a pretty intense um, area for, for sports and, and history of sports. And my, my dad, um, you know, played um, and was a good athlete, but it's, it's crazy. But everybody talks about my mom. My mom was actually probably way, way, way ahead of time, um, played uh, was petitioned to play little league baseball, um, as a girl, um, you know, and that was a big, big deal back at that time. Um, but she could play, um, you know, she was really a really, really good athlete. And so when people talk to me about athleticism, it's, it's often they talk, uh, um, about my mom for sure. And what, what values did mom and dad pass down to you? Um, you know that it mattered that you do things the right way not so much that you became a star they never yelled uh ever from the stands i never i don't i don't remember ever hearing a one word from them from the stands um but it mattered that you play the right way that you uh that you're dedicated um that you're a good teammate um you know, that, that stuff was, was really, really, uh, important to them. And on a total, just value standpoint, you know, we grew up in a really, um, especially because of the business, um, in a tremendously multicultural community. Um, and so from a young age, it was just like everyone or we're all just people. It doesn't matter what color, doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what part of the city that you're from, nothing. There was no, there was literally, I can say to this day um, that I, I probably didn't even realize how open-minded and, and just void of that kind of stuff my household was. And I think that that went into, you know, even then how, how you view teammates and coaches and, and what it's all about and teamwork and just valuing people and you gave us a glimpse of when sports psychology started to enter your mind either consciously or subconsciously but when did sports psychology become something that you really wanted to pursue and became interested in yeah i um i ended up having to do an extra semester of undergrad um just from scheduling kind of messed me up a little bit so i ended up doing an extra semester and one of my roommates was an education major and uh and so he was going to be you know he's doing his student teaching and they had an opportunity to to he was going to coach and and he did and he got ingrained a little bit in that school which was pretty close to our college and uh he said hey you know there's a basketball position opening up um for coach in the, at the junior high do you think you would want to coach and i had always thought about coaching and i said yeah yeah i yeah, I think I am interested. And I coached a junior high team and fell in love with coaching. And that was basically the moment where I realized this is actually what I want to do. However, I was a business major at the time. And so I was not an education major. And so it set the bug in me, started coaching once I graduated. And, but, but, you know, was working, um, in, in, you know, business facing sales and realized this is not what I want to do. I want to get into coaching and 
but I didn't know a subject that I wanted to teach because I figured I would just be a teacher and a, and a high school coach. And uh, what hit me was that I, I guess really what I like is working with young people, uh, you know, and, and using sport, I guess, maybe as a way to, to help develop them completely. And so I ended up getting my, my master's degree in counseling. And that was where the, the melding of coaching and, and the mental aspect, you know, developed. What, what was the situation with the store? Were you thinking at all, hey, I'm going to go back there? And was that the idea of majoring in business or, or what was I think was it was. Like? Yeah, I think that that was kind of uh, an unspoken, you know, I will say my family was not, they didn't push us at all to do that. Like pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue was the message. But because I, I didn't really have anything that I was like, Oh, I really love this subject. Um, probably I did know what it was. I just didn't think I could accomplish it. Um, but that, that is why I figured, well, I'll go down the business route and I could always work in the store. Um, but got my degree and, and, you know, got a job in the corporate world and, and, uh, started there um but realized i just had no interest at all in that and did your older brother go to work for the business he did for a very short time i believe but then ended up leaving um leaving that and i have a middle brother who was not interested in sports at all um completely not interested and and so um and so he didn't go into the business either but i did have a cousin that went into the family business Got it. So you go on and you get your master's in counseling and it's at that point, you're doing some coaching, you're doing some counseling. And so is it an aha moment or is it while you're doing the counseling? Like what, what happens for you that this world of sports psychology starts to bubble up to the surface? Yeah, that's exactly how it was. It was every day that I was coaching. And I think, honestly, I probably had it's going to sound bad, I guess, but kind of an intuitive sense of the psychology of athletes. Um, it's something that just made sense to me to a certain degree. Why do you think um, that sounds bad still? Yeah, it's probably a bad way of saying it. It, it sounds like me, I, I, the way I meant it was that maybe I'm, I'm saying this as if I'm bragging about it. It's, and it's not, that wasn't the intention, but that's not a bad thing either. I guess most people have stuff that intuitively makes sense to them. So they pursue it. Um, but without a doubt, as I was coaching, I'm like, man, I am using more and more of my counseling, you know, background as I'm doing this. I'm just recognizing it just pouring out as we're interacting. And it just started me on a path of, of nonstop interest in it. Um, but it was more just, I'm going to continue to read and learn, um, but I'm going to keep continue to be what I am, a school counselor and a coach. And then... I don't know, maybe around 2006, 2007, somewhere in that range. Um, I started to get more and more interested. Um, so at that point, yeah. you're doing counseling and you're doing coaching. So you have like a master's in social work or what's the, what's the uh, counseling? Just, uh, MED, uh, uh, educational counseling. So I was doing, you know, um, everything from guidance type of counseling uh, to, you know, to, to trying to help kids that were, you know, struggling in one, one way or another. Got it. And I do want to go back to that idea of intuitiveness because I think that there's, there's two thoughts that I had. One is that we do have instincts. We have an intuitive nature. There's some science around, you know, the gut and there's a 
you know, brain that exists in our gut. And there is some intuitiveness and instincts that whether it's innate or whether it occurs when we're very young kids and it gets developed, hard to really know. Um, but, but you, just like me, have probably met people along your journey that are loving the work that you do. And they say, oh, Stu, like, I'd love to do what you do. I'd love to work with Maryland women's basketball. That sounds <laughs> awesome. And you can see there, there is a different level of, I'm going to call it talent or intuitiveness there. It, there just is, just like anything in this world, I think there, there is this notion that we, we do have some talent. We do have some gifts. And I think it's up to us to figure out what those gifts are and to nurture that. And um, I think uh, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus's book, Peak Performance, talks about nurturing yeah. your nature and this notion of nurturing your nature. So, I, 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 so that's one thought. And then a second thought I have is uh, this idea that we have a ability and a, I want to say responsibility or obligation to to nurture those gifts. And I think it's up to us to figure out what in us is art and what is science. And I think great coaches mix art and science. And whether it's a sport coach or the type of coaching we do or a leader and a CEO, you mm -hmm. need data, you need science, but there's also this artistic intuitiveness that is hard to explain. And you and I are both probably watching the NBA playoffs right now. And you can have data all you want. You know, this idea of Kevin Durant on the Golden State Warriors and are they better with him or without him? Like the data is going to say they're better with him. And it's possible that they play a team style without him that's also beautiful. And so I love this idea of art, art and science. And mm -hmm. um, you can have both and respect both. And too often, I think we get into this idea of saying, no, it's science, it's fact, it's data. And maybe we're missing some of the art. And then conversely, sometimes when we're just saying, no, that's just my instincts or my intuitiveness, and we're ignoring the data, we can run into trouble. So I'd love for you to riff on that. And you gave me yeah. a little entry point there, and I could just run, run away and ignore it. But I think it's actually no. like a really interesting theme for us to unpack. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's at the core of so much of what we do. And I mean, I'll give you my my slant on it first and then we can dig as deep as you want to go into it but my slant is is that the art is what makes um that's what makes someone special at whatever field it is so as a coach um there comes a point where x's and o's are you know for instance i don't think coach k necessarily has that many more X's and O's than any coach he's coaching against. That's not what makes him better is that he's got more knowledge about what I'm going to run in this moment. I'm not saying that that's not a part of it. You certainly must have that part of it, but the art is to get those five players that are doing whatever it is to be on the same exact page and, and to go out and be selfless and, and, and do what it takes to perform that. That's the art of it. It's not anybody can put <clears throat> some X's and some O's on, on a piece of paper um, and show what the movement is. That's not, that's not the coaching. The coaching comes in the art. Um, so I absolutely think that, um, that what makes the difference between good to great is the ability to have the art saying that 
I 100% agree with you on the idea that, especially in what we do, and 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 I'll again, I'll I'll, uh, I'll show my hand. I get very frustrated when I see people talking about the psychology of performance, and they have no training in it. Not because I think I or you or anybody else that's educated are the only ones that can have information. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I don't subscribe to that concept, but I do see a lot of times where people say this is confidence and they say, because this is what I do. Well, you're a study of one who cares what worked honestly in a weird way. I don't care what worked for Michael Jordan. And and that might sound blasphemous, but, but he's an outlier of all outliers because it worked for Michael Jordan. And that's what he did mentally does not mean that the other 99.9999% of us could try to mimic what he did. Now we can probably pull some things and see where, but it needs to be rooted in something that makes sense based in the science of what the brain's all about. Um, so I get a little bit frustrated probably when I see something that I know is not rooted in anything that's of substance. Can you riff on confidence a little bit and, and teach? And so how do you think <laughs> about confidence? How do you build it? Where does it come from? And, uh, you know, I would love for you to, to give us a glimpse into some of the stuff that you talk about with the teams and, uh, we're not paying you. So I appreciate it. You can give us the, <laughs> the spark notes version or tease us a little bit. No, it's but, fine. No, yeah. it's fine. Uh, you know, so the reason I laughed only was because, um, you know, cause at the, at the end of the day, so much of my development of it is certainly based in, in my teeth, you know, my, the, the education that I have, but then it's okay. But now what is my on the ground experience? Tell me. Um, I try to frame confidence this way, that it is preparation, uh, but it's physical preparation and it's mental preparation. And what I mean by that is um, I actually went golfing last weekend. Uh, I used to golf a lot. I don't golf almost any at all. In fact, last weekend may have been my first time in like three years. I could be 100 percent mentally confident in myself like I can handle if I hit a bad shot or if I'm standing over a putt I'm not going to get overly concerned about making it or missing it I know what to do I'm not good right so I'm not going to be a great golfer like I need the physical prep I haven't golfed in three years I'm not going to play well I'm an amateur golfer right so for me to be confident I need to be I need to have prepared physically, right? I need to have hit thousands and thousands of balls, probably with a pro watching me, telling me what's going on and correcting and then working at that and getting better and better so that I believe that my body is ready to, to do what it needs to do. Then I need to have my mind prepared. My mind needs to be prepared. Well, what do I do if there's a pressure put and everything comes down to this moment? How do I slow my heart rate? Um, how do I, you know, kind of calm myself and, and just let my my body take over and not need, um, you know, to to overthink it? And that's preparation. And so, it, you know, I'm fortunate. I get to work with some of the elite of the elite of of our of our country. And I know that the best of the best are prepared both ways. They're not prepared just one way. And I do think that we are a society right now who's getting better at understanding this, but we, 
I still believe that we overtrain the body and we undertrain the mind. We are, we are so far from where we could or should be um, with the mental training. Um, and we underplay it and we overplay the, the physical prep because at some point the physical prep is the physical prep. That's really good. But there are still going to be moments where we're, where we make mistakes, we're losing, we're down. It's a big moment. And if we're not prepared mentally for that moment, all the physical training goes out the window. So that's kind of how I would frame confidence. Yeah. And how I do frame confidence. And this is where I think we can get very much more <laughs> into a conversation and discussion. And I'm excited to see where this part goes. Uh, I think you hit on it, which is competence and the ability to do something and knowing how to do something, the competence to have the skill to actually execute uh, mm -hmm. is massive. And I think if we have confidence, we can talk to ourselves about our competence and that we know how to do something. So I think self-talk is a tool to bring mm -hmm. out someone's confidence. But to your point, I play golf too. I actually play a decent amount, but I didn't play at all growing up. And my swing is no one's ever said to me, Hey, Brian, your swing is great, man. All you got to do is <laughs> like play this a little bit. So, um, you know, until my swing is at a level that um, is really competent and consistent and repeatable, yes. just like a yep. jump shot, it doesn't matter how confident I am because I'm, I don't have the competence level to be consistent with that mechanics. And so this notion of training physically, technically, mentally, you need those three to execute at your best or your highest potential. But this notion, I always say, like, I'd rather have a very competent doctor or surgeon who lacks confidence than a, a really confident surgeon who is incompetent, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> right. Like I got That's a great way of framing it. Yeah. Like I got my ACL done four and a half years ago. Like give me the guy who's competent and, and is going to lack a little confidence than the incompetent guy who's going to do my right ACL when it's my left ACL that needs to get done. Yeah. And so the other thing that I always talk about in, in relation to preparation is being humble in preparation so that we can be confident in performance. Um, and so if we're humble in preparation, we're trying to figure out ways to get better and find nuance and, and feedback and information that's going to help us perform. And I think there's tremendous value in, pre in preparing with confidence. So humble preparation, but then a great practice will involve both humble preparation and practicing with confidence uh, so that you work both of those muscles and you've spent time with your humility um, and you spent time scrimmaging or going live or, you know, shell drill or small sided in soccer, like times where you have to just perform. And I think that's all necessary. So that's how I've learned to understand confidence. And uh, it's the one thing when I ask athletes what they want to work on, they often come back and say, man, if I'm confident, like I'll be good. Um, you have any thoughts or, or want to riff on what I just talked about or anything to add? Yeah, no, there's, there's two, two pieces to that. Um, <clears throat> it's actually, you know, I, I, you know, this, this, um, that I work in the WNBA as well. So the WNBA is made up of 144 players. So this is the elite of the elite of the world, right? This is probably the 144 best players in the world, give or take a couple Europeans that just don't want to come over, but that's few and far between. If they're capable of doing it, they're, they're probably playing in this league. And I always say to them, um, you know, everybody knows the phrase, 
you know, next shots going in, right? That's what you're supposed, you know, what are you supposed to tell yourself? You're missing shots. Next shots going in. Next shot, you know, next one's good. You can't lie to yourself, right? You, so that it's not about somebody saying, no, just, just tell yourself, you know, self-talk your way into it. It doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. And, and so it's not about not knowing that that's what you should believe that the next one's going to be good. It's that you're willing to put in the time, both physically, again, being competent, but also in the mental aspect of what, what does it take to move on from the last mistake, the last miss, and, and just be ready for the next one as if the last one never occurred, regardless of whether you make or miss, really. It doesn't, because neither of the last truly matters in, in this next one. And so that's the first thing, because you started talking about self-talk, and it's one of the, it, I don't, it's not self-talk is bad. I don't believe it's a bad skill. I believe that if you don't understand the underlying mechanisms of what's going on, self-talk is you lying to yourself. Okay. So that doesn't make sense and you can't lie to yourself. So it's not going to work. The second one is that I think you were also kind of hitting on was, you know, I, in, in some of my trainings now, when I talk to new teams that is that I, I've really come to understand that the elite of the elite are not elite because they're, they're perfect or that they even believe that they're perfect. They're elite because of how they approach their imperfection. They, like I, if I present and, and the, the, they just look and they go, can this make me better? Yes. Okay. I want to do it. They don't, they don't think, well, if I do this, will other people think differently of me or, um, am I less than because I need to do this? That it's just not the way they approach it. They, they accept that they're imperfect. And so of course I'm going to do what it takes to get closer to and, and while accepting that there's no such thing. And I think that that to me is the separator that I get to see sometimes is the real elite are just accepting of the idea that, I'm imperfect. So give me what I can. I'll work on anything that I can in order to get closer to it. So what I'm hearing from you is there's an awareness that, Hey, I got to get better at something. I need to improve if I want to keep going down the path I'm going. And if I think that there's something that can give me an edge, I'm down to give yes. that not just a yes. shot, but to invest in it Yes, because it can help me get closer to this quote unquote world of perfection that I know doesn't exist, but that's what I am. I'm sort of chasing. Is that how you think? Yeah. About it? I mean, it's the idea of mastery, right? It's the idea of mastery, right? And, and that's what we're really talking about right now is the idea of, can we get closer and closer? Um, you know, I, I think I like to believe at least that, that mastery, true mastery, just I'm never going to make a mistake at something. I just own it completely. There's no more for me to learn or grow into is, is not, um, is not what we're discussing. We're talking about moving towards a mastery, which to me is much more of a just deep understanding, deep competence. Um, but the acceptance that it's kind of this forever path that we're on until we choose to get off of that path, but we're not, we don't reach the end of that path. 
I want to flip this on its head a little bit and go back to you are doing counseling and you're doing coaching and now you jump into this world of, of sports psychology. How do you think about mastery in, in your world, in your lens and from your perspective? So rather than talk about the clients, I'd love to know more about you and, and how you pursue your own mastery. Yeah, I mean, and I talk about this in in trainings, especially when I talk about motivation. You know, I, I here's another one of those cliches that I hear is coaches, um, mental, whatever gurus uh, talk about. You need to love it in order to whatever, as if loving something is something that I can turn or turn off, right? So if I said to you, hey, you're going to marry this woman, you need to love her. I'm going to pick who it is. You would look at me like I'm insane, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. I'm going to fall in love with who I want to fall in love with, marry and spend the rest of my life with, right? So it's not something that we can just tell someone, you need to love it. That's the great ones love it. Well, I would agree with that to a certain extent, although I also would tell you that there's a lot that don't necessarily love it, but they're so competent and so capable that they've learned how to, to, to really work within it. But, but anyways, bottom line is, is that I think that that's a, a false cliche saying that I love what I do. So my form of mastery is that I'm in nonstop pursuit of becoming better at what I do. So if you would have talked to me five years ago, um, in a humble yet honest way, I would have told you, I, I think I'm pretty good at my profession. And now five years ahead, I know that I'm better now than I was then. Okay. And I truly believe that five years from now, I will tell you I'm better than I was today than the day that we talked on our podcast together. So mine is this just never ending pursuit of saying, okay, I have X amount of knowledge that I trust, but <clears throat> it's not about my knowledge. It's about my ability to connect it to people that have to use it in really difficult, stressful, um, chaotic moments in their world. And that's a really hard thing. And, and so it's my job to become better and better and better at explaining what could be potentially relatively complicated concepts in a way where they can process it, digest it, and use it. Because if they can't use it, I've done nothing for them. It's interesting when you talk about passion and love, there's just an article in the, I think it was the Players Tribune with Malcolm Brogdon. And Malcolm, uh, for those that don't know, came on this podcast uh, we had a great conversation and Malcolm's nickname is the president. And uh, when he was at the university of Virginia, there's an area on university of Virginia's campus, which is for like the elite of the elite academics and they live on campus and Malcolm lived there and Malcolm's family are a bunch of like really well-educated lawyers and his family is involved in the civil rights movement. I mean, Malcolm is a thoughtful, thoughtful dude. And he just came out an article saying that his purpose is to make the world better essentially and he's doing all kinds of work in Africa and when we talked you could tell he would light up when you talk about the work that he's doing building water wells in Africa and I will also tell you that I know for a fact that in the summer Malcolm was living in Washington DC and working out at American University with a ball and a ball boy 
and just working his tail off to get better at his craft. Malcolm also was somebody who was under-recruited for most of high school, um, did well academically. Uh, I think he wanted to go to University of Florida or Stanford, and then they, they didn't want him. He ends up at UVA. He was deciding between UVA and Harvard. But this is a guy who then went to UVA and uh, was overlooked in the draft, even though he had a great career. So it's interesting because he's so competitive and wants to get better and is really in lockstep with what you were describing earlier with his growth and his desire to master. And he has this other side of him that he's so passionate about making the world a better place. And I think what's cool about this generation of athletes is that we are no longer saying they have to be just singularly focused. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the ridiculousness of that their day needs to be completely obsessed with one thing. And I think Paul Rabel, who's another guy who I've had on mm -hmm. the podcast, mm -hmm. is taking this to an extreme that he started his own lacrosse league. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he says that building business actually helps him become a better lacrosse player because he's learned how to be efficient. He's learned how to manage his emotions. And all this stuff from building business and investing has helped him on the lacrosse field. And so as you're thinking about your own mastery and you're thinking about your passion and your love for sports psychology and growing at your craft, what are things that you do outside of it that might help you become better at your work and better at serving the people that you serve uh, on the field or on the court or wherever it is that they're performing? Um, I mean, it's a phenomenal question because it's one of the things that I try to pull out of the athletes that I work with is who they are, what value, what, what do they value beyond um, sport? I mean, if it is your number one, awesome. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but you are more than that. And often motivation can come from the idea that there's something bigger beyond what you're, what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question on my end, I mean, first and foremost is that my family is, you know, I got, I have three kids that I uh, adore and, and a wife that I adore and, and pour everything into and they come, you know, way before um, anything that I'm doing professionally. So it's easy for me to, to um, disconnect from my work self into what really matters. Um, you know, and, and, and I do think that that then connects back to what I do professionally because I'm rarely, how do I say this, uh, the right way is I'm rarely super impressed with, um, someone because they're a great athlete. Uh, I'm more impressed with the person. Um, and I think that's kind of goes back to this idea that, that we're on the planet for a bigger, bigger purpose. And, and, um, and so being a great athlete is an unbelievable advantage, unbelievable skill, unbelievable, um, opportunity that a lot of these, these, uh, athletes that I work with have. Um, but I hope that you, that there's more. And, and so I think that those two things connect for me and in, in how I do my work. And then also what I believe about my, my goal is not to, it's weird because I want them to perform at their absolute best. But I always say that if all I ever do is help you 
on the court or in the pool or on the track or wherever else I'm helping, um, then I've failed you because I hope that everything that I'm teaching helps you to become more completely whole as in, in, in everything that you do in life. You mentioned that today you're, you were pretty good five years ago and then today you hope you're better. What have you learned in the last five years? What do you do now that maybe you weren't doing five years ago? Um, I'm not sure that I'm doing, you know, from a, from a skill standpoint, I think I'm doing a lot of the same. I have a lot of the same, um, theoretical approach to what I do. I think I've refined my theoretical. I've, 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 I've refined the approach. I've refined how I explain to an athlete what's going on inside of the brain, why it does what it does when we're under stress and pressure and how, and, and then also just my own experience allows me to speak, um, with that much more, um, like come with me here. I trust me in this because I've done it so many times and seen the the impact that it's had that I think that that can't help but change how the client handles it and takes it and says, okay, I'm 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 willing to go on this journey with you even though I don't necessarily know what we're about to do. Like I trust that you know what you're about to do and I think that's how I'm better now. I don't think it's necessarily that I've evolved in my approach that much. And any thought on where you're going the next 5 years? So I mean, you and I haven't discussed it. I think we've discussed it off, uh, off the mic, but, but we haven't discussed it today, but I'm a, you know, I am a big believer in the use of mindfulness as one of my training tools. And the reason that I believe so heavily in it is because, you know, the, the brain's, uh, survival instinct wants to take us to prevention of danger and the danger lies in the what if. So what if I lose? What if I embarrass myself? What if I miss this next shot? Um, or vice versa, if I have lost or have lo- uh, missed my last shot, can I prevent it from, from then clouding my prediction of the what if is going to happen? And so the idea of being present um, is, is massive for me. And, and I've really done a lot with that over the last number of years. But where I would say where things are, are headed, where I would hope that, that, and, and this is, we're not there yet in, in any way that I, I can tell. Um, but, but man, this is where we need to go. And maybe, you know, differently is how can we in real time see through, cause like, for instance, we do heart rate monitors on most of the teams that, that I work with. So the strength and conditioning coaches can see who's, who's at maximum capacity right now, who should we back off uh, so that we can potentially prevent injury before it happens. Right. Or, or for whatever reasons that they want to use it for. And that's certainly their area of expertise and not mine. What if we could have something similar to that, that says it in, in this, you know, last second foul shot to, to either win or lose a game. Um, where's that heart rate at right now? Where is that brain activity at right now? Can we, would we be able to see like an athlete actually slowing those things down? Um, 
so that we know that the skills that we're building are actually now in the moment in, in the works. And, and I know you also created an app uh, to help train athletes. Would love to get some perspective on why you did that and how's it going? What's it looking like? Uh, give someone some insight into what the app's all about. Yeah, so it is definitely an offspring of part of that, you know, ongoing development. So I do teach every team that I work with, every athlete that I work with, um, the practice of mindfulness. And for me, mindfulness is not a be-all, end-all by any stretch. And it's certainly not the only thing that I teach. Um, but what I do think it is, is like the workout for the brain. I think it, it's, it's this, um, it's exercise to, to learn how to, to regulate the, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a little sciencey for a moment, but the amygdala, you know, the fear center of the brain, the emotion center of the brain and, and, and to kind of calm it down and, and to kind of light up the, uh, the prefrontal cortex, which is our planning and, and, and rational thought decision maker. And, that matters because in the high pressured moments, we need to kind of quiet the emotion and, and increase the ability to think clearly. So that's why I, I do it. So I teach my teams that. And what I was doing was I would teach my teams, we would do it. I would say, and then I would have individual athletes that I'm working with. And I'd say, Hey, here's some apps that I recommend you to, to practice in between our individual sessions and our team sessions. Because to me, it's the daily workout. Spend 10 minutes a day. It's not a lot of time, but it'll really begin to train your mind to just be able to handle those situations just a little bit better. And if you can handle those situations just a little bit better, then some of the other skill work that we can do can more easily flow into those moments. So that's why I did it. And I had a, a former player, um, uh, and I'll, I'll give her a shout out, Steph Dolson, that used to play for the, uh, she played for UConn and then for the Mystics, and, and now she plays in Chicago. Um, and uh, she was like, Stu, I like what you do. I don't like these other apps. You know, and she was like, why, why are you sending me to somebody else's app? Why don't you just make one? And like Steph, if you know her, she's hilarious. She's like a really funny, like great, you know. So I, I think it was a little bit like her joking around in a way. But it was like, yeah, why don't I do this? Because the other ones are just literally guided mindfulness meditation, but it wasn't sports. They're not sports related. And I started realizing everything that I do, I tie in concepts to then the practice, the brain training, the exercise for the brain. Um, and that's how I created the app. And, and uh, for the most part, if you're working with me, I'm trying to tell you, do this daily because this is the workout that you know just once a week with me or once a month if we're doing team sessions or whatever is good but let's let's do 10 minutes a day and and really tie it all together what does your meditation practice look like my own personal yes uh every single morning uh, literally every single morning, uh, for the most part, certainly during the work week, probably up around five 30 in the morning, uh, sit quietly in my house, earphones in, um, 10 minutes a morning, uh, just really, um, trying to become completely present, um, allow my mind to wander, bring it back, um, over and over and over again. 
And without a doubt, I know that it's had positive impact on me. Very cool. The other thing I was curious about was in the beginning, you talked about this passion you had for working with youth and to helping them get to where they want to go. Now you're working with adults and pros. Uh, uh, so I'm curious if there's anything you do differently if you're working with a 16-year-old. I know you have a 16-year-old. Let's yeah. not use your 16-year-old as an example, but yeah. maybe one of their friends. Yeah. And compared to when you're working with a college athlete, compared to when you're working with a pro, how do you show up? Are there any differences with how you approach those populations? You know, the biggest difference is just understanding the um, the relevance and commitment of of time and um, you know going. So the the quick answer is my 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 theoretical approach does not change. It's understanding what their world is, um, understanding the amount of time uh, sacrifice, um, as, as you go up, obviously the time and sacrifice go up as well. And, and so understanding the relevance in their world, um, and then also understanding the difference in, in competence, right? That's what changes. So, um, you know, you have to be able to kind of go up and down. And I, today, um, today's a, a perfect example of my regular day. Um, today had two, I think, high school sophomores uh, as clients and, and, and uh, two or three uh, pros and, and then a, a college athlete like that. Was, so my, my day typically is composed of different levels like that, that I'm toggling, you know, back and forth between. Um, but the cool part is obviously when I'm talking to a young athlete to be able to say to them, look, I don't teach something different to pros and they're going through exactly what you go through. It's just at a higher platform. It's at a higher media coverage, let's say. Um, but at the end of the day, these things are similar at all levels. And, um, and so for them, I want them to know that because I want them to know like, hey, if you're struggling at 15 years old, that does not mean that you can't become a pro, right? It doesn't, like that's not, it's not like they became, became pros because they didn't struggle mentally. They may have. Now they may have had a skill set that covered it up, but at the end of the day, um, it's actually not different. So I think it's an easy buy-in for a younger athlete to know like, wow, so your pros are like, they're learning the same things. Absolutely. It's interesting. You've used the word teach a lot during our conversation today and going back to what your passion was and what you thought you were going to pursue uh, originally, it was, Hey, maybe I'll be a teacher and I'll coach and that's what I'll do. And you also have gotten your doctorate. You've also gone on to get your PhD and in most clinical psychology models, uh, they are less heavy on teaching and more heavy on asking questions and counseling a lot of asking questions and so i'm curious for you how you toggle between teaching mm -hmm. and mental training and mental skills and how much of the time you are asking questions to help them figure it out for themselves uh, from a theoretical standpoint one of my core systems is that um 
that the human species is extremely resilient or we would not be where we are today right the, you know the we're i think as a species we're 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 two million years old so we've evolved and and, and because of our resilience so I, I feel like the species is outrageously inherently resilient where we where we get in our way from that resilience is actually what we start to believe and think and that can sometimes get in the way of our resilience so to answer your question that's where i begin from in order to so when i so today i had a new client new high school client um, and it begins by finding out their world first and and allowing for them to explore the idea that just because they finally said you know what i want to I want to work on my mind because I'm not necessarily happy or I see times where I, you know, I falter or whatever, that, that it's actually completely by the brain's design. It's not a big deal. You're not, you're not broken. Um, and, but what you don't have probably is an understanding of why your brain does what it does and you don't know what to do with it when it does that. And so, that to me is the toggle. Like I need to know their world. I need to know what's going on. I need to know uh, to let them bring that out. I need, I need to ask them about ways that they've experienced this and overcome it. And then at the end, I also have to be able to teach them things that there literally is nowhere in our society that teaches. Unfortunately, I, th I feel like we should be teaching this stuff in elementary school. Um, I think we would cut off so many future issues for kids, whether it be academic issues or whatever issues, if we were doing a better job of introducing these things at an earlier age. But they don't get it anywhere else. So there's got to be some teaching that's done. And for those that are less familiar, I, I want to make a distinction between mental health and mental performance. And there's a lot in the news right now with Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan, a lot of athletes talking about the value of mental health and uh, Kevin Love talked about having panic attacks. And today, this morning, uh, I saw some news come across that the NFL is going to have eight to 12 hours, I think, a week dedicated to having somebody on site to help with mental health. And mm. so with your background, that you have a master's in counseling, you have a PhD. What's the PhD in specifically? PsyD in, um, Psy -D. Psy -D in, in uh, human performance or mental performance. And to clarify, PhD tends to be more research-heavy. PsyD is more applied. Correct. That's a distinction yeah. there for those yeah. that don't know I this wanted, stuff. Yep, I, I definitely wanted to be a practitioner, not a not a researcher. But still, going the PsyD route, you're you're looking at clinical mm -hmm. challenges and going the DSM, which is what we use. Uh, and and I hate to use acronyms because people don't always understand acronyms. But the DSM is what is used to diagnose uh, clinical issues that people might have. So I'm curious for you in, in your career and your work, how much of your work is focused on mental performance and how much of it is focused on, on the clinical side? A hundred percent on performance. <laughs> so I do no clinical. I am not a clinical side D. Um, and I make sure by the way, that I let everybody know uh, that that's the case saying that there is crossover. Uh, I do have training. Um, and, and so, um, but it, I always tell everybody, coaches, um, to parents, individual athletes that I'm working with, that if I 
see what we're doing is crossing over into or is is a clinical issue i then refer for them to do you know more therapeutic counseling saying that and that has happened where we've made those referrals is that um you know again uh, i'm just such a believer in being proactive rather than reactive i think so much of what um we haven't done well as a society this isn't just in sport but in as a society is that is that we haven't um we haven't done a great job of being proactive in teaching like we're willing to do like i remember in, in elementary school doing like fluoride rinses and doing where a dentist or a hygienist comes in and tells you how to floss and things in school so we're willing to do like dental hygiene but we're not willing to do like mental hygiene and it doesn't make sense to me because so much is going to be riding on the idea of being able to handle the difficult times of life because everyone, I don't care who it is, is going to deal with difficult times in life. And that to me would make way more sense in place where we should be spending time. I'm pretty optimistic. And I think we talked about this last time you were in DC. Uh, I know there's a county right by here that is integrated mindfulness into their school system. Growth mindset is everywhere. If you go into yes. schools now and yeah. teachers are talking about growth mindset. So I, I think it is changing, but I think the school system is one of the most archaic systems that we have. And there's a lot of challenges and issues and there's a lot of really smart, good people that are working in those schools. Um, but I think it's going to be a slow haul, but I, I do am, see, I see signs. Yeah. I'm pretty optimistic about I'm it. In, uh, I'm in conversations right now with a former player um, from Maryland who is now an educator um, and became a dean. Um, and when I saw that she was taking on the dean position, she and I discussed the idea of coming in and doing some of this training for young for young people. Um, so we're we're going to do that at her school. At least I hope. I, I mean, we're not we're not 100 there, but we're pretty close. Awesome. Uh, last question for you. We've talked a lot about athletes and athlete performance, but you're working at elite high level teams. We're talking about the Washington Mystics, Maryland women's basketball. I know you work with other teams as well. Yeah. How much of your work is also with the staff and making sure that they're in alignment with what you're trying to do? And how much do you serve them compared to the athletes that you serve? Yeah, I, I could not be more fortunate. Um, maybe there's a self-selection process that happens with coaches that are willing to bring in someone like myself or yourself that they're naturally more open to it. But every coaching staff that I work with is phenomenal um, in, in the fact that they, they don't, they don't want this to be something that the players do, but they don't like, that's not for, for us. So you know, most of the time they sit in on the team sessions, sometimes not depending upon what we're doing, but often they do. Um, example with the mystics is that all off season, we, we really talked and discussed how we integrate and become, can become better and better at integrating kind of sound principles into everyday practice and, and, you know, terminology and, and using terminology that's similar between my, what I might be doing individually and what they might be doing out on the court or in the middle of a game. And, and so um, it's a, you know, to, to answer it in a more generic way, we must create environments 
the environment that we create for our athletes has to be psychologically informed because they will never listen to you and I players will never listen to you and I to the level that they're going to listen to the coach, right. And, or the coaching staff, because they are the gatekeepers to playing time. And so we have to move in the direction of creating a psychologically informed environment. And the, the teams that I work with are, and staffs that I work with are pretty phenomenal like that. They're, they're really, I love it. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate when it comes to that. Awesome. So I'd like to finish with you using this as a megaphone to promote your app. Let us know where we can find you on social media and anything else that you feel like deserves some attention and, and a megaphone too. So I'll open it up to you. Um, yeah, I'm the worst promoter in the world, but I would say that the, the app um, is in the app store. Do so D O S O it's 10 minutes a day. It's so well worth it. The athletes that, that use it, I, I know for a fact really kind of come back to me and go, you know, at first I wasn't sure, but I get it. And, and they use it. Um, you can find me at uh, www.wellperformancecoach.com is my website. Um, I am on Twitter at, at wellperformance, Instagram, wellperformance. And one of the things that I, that I say all the time about my, social media is I will never put anything on my social media that does not align completely with what I uh, teach and, and understand from a, from a um, grounding in the science. I'm not going to put a quote from, I'll use Michael Jordan again. And by the way, I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. So it's not about being negative about that, but I'm not going to use a quote from a, from an elite level athlete that actually isn't going to be what I would say psychologically sound for, the other 99.9999% of us. Cool. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And then the podcast, you can listen to all these podcasts at intentionalperformers.com. Stu, you are an intentional man and an <laughs> intentional performer. And I'm, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the years. And I know you get to come through DC and Maryland. You know, maybe I'll have to have you live in my basement at some point when you're, <laughs> when you're visiting and you can babysit my kids too when you're here. And, there you uh, go. Help me there out. Yeah. Earn, earn your rent. But, yeah, I can uh, really mess them up. <laughs> but looking forward to, to hanging with you again in the future. And, and thanks for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge and your story with us today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. This is good stuff. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You can't lie to yourself, right? You So the, it's not about somebody saying, no, just, just tell yourself, you know, self-talk your way into it. It doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. And, and so it's not about not knowing that that's what you should believe that the next one's going to be good. It's that you're willing to put in the time, both physically, again, being competent, but also in the mental aspect of what, what does it take to move on from the last mistake, the last miss, and, and just be ready for the next one as if the last one never occurred. Regardless of whether you make or miss, really, it doesn't, because neither of the last truly matters in, in this next one.